Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. take a seat. Thank you, Mike. I have a confession to make. I have been praying to Jesus that we would win the home lottery in Henley Beach. I know, it feels gross saying it out loud, but it's in Henley Beach, all right? If it was anywhere else, no. But we need a home in Henley so that we can do ministry in Henley when we launch Encounter Henley very, 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 very soon. It would be for ministry, Jesus, all right? Ministry. So I bought one ticket, just one. And the chances of us winning are one in 180,000. That in itself is a miracle. The odds are not in our favour. I know that they say that there's a 1 in 15 chance of winning in the hospital research home lottery, but I don't need the other stuff. I don't need a new car. I don't need some gift voucher. What I need is a house in Henley Beach, in Jesus' name. (laughs) 1 in 180,000. Big money Blackwell up the back there bought five tickets the hospital research home lottery. So he has a 1 in 36,000 chance of winning. Less of a miracle, but still a miracle. Now, I wouldn't be praying for this hospital uh, research home lottery house if I did not have need. If I was just praying for a house in Henley Beach out of my own desire to live a comfortable beach leisure lifestyle, uh, I would have prayed maybe once or twice. Uh, and then I would have given up because it's a desire, not a need. Desire fades over time. They're just wants. Needs don't fade because you need them. Need drives us to pray. So I've been praying. Two years ago, I was looking at my budget one night and there were so many things uh, that were outside of our control uh, and not our choice that meant that we were... $10,000 short for the year. And I'm someone who, if I'm honest, does find a sense of security and safety in in finances and what we have in our savings. And so I was freaking out. $10,000, where are we going to get that from? And so I began to pray, Lord, would you meet our need? We need to find this extra $10,000, please, Lord, every day. And a few weeks later, we, we get this unexpected email saying that we will be financially supported to the sum of X dollars a week, which when I did the math, added up to $10,000. Our need drove me to, to pray, and God met our need. Now, I have more than one story of this, and I'd wager that some of you in the room would also have your own stories, where you've had need, and you've taken that need to God in prayer, And God has come through for you. But he doesn't always. 
the reality is he doesn't always. He doesn't always miraculously meet our needs. He doesn't always immediately come through for us in prayer. I've also been praying every day for two and a half years that Ashley, my wife, would be well. And so far, she is still suffering. She needs to be well. We need her to be well. It's been two and a half years. And will I give up? Will I stop praying? Not on your life. Need does that. There's a 2018 survey in the UK found that half of all adults in the UK pray. One in five people who state that they have no religious affiliation at all pray. And of those who pray, the top reason they pray, the top reasons are personal crisis or tragedy, 55%. On the off chance that something would change, 32%. As a last resort, 24%. Or to gain comfort or feel less lonely, 23%. And of those surveyed, only 33% attended church at least once a year. And only 9% of the people surveyed attended the church regularly, which according to the survey, survey is once a month. Now, I, I think I reject their definition of regularly, but that's a whole other thing. But what, what the point is that need drives even those who do not espouse a religion to pray. Need drives those who identify as Christian or culturally Christian to pray. Need drives those who regularly attend those who belong to a church community, to pray. Need drives us to pray. It's almost like it's a fundamental human behaviour to cry out to the divine when we are in need. It's almost as if crying out to God the Father is built into the DNA of a human being. There's this fascinating story of need in the book of Acts, chapter 12. So if you've got your Bibles, either on your phone or in person, you might as well get them out. And you can read along with us. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some of those who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during, during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Bound with two trains and sentries stood guard at the entrance, and suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. And then the angel said to him, put your clothes and your sandals on. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. And so Peter followed him out of the prison. But he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gates leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. And then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. 
When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. And when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they said to her. And when she kept insisting that it was so, they said, well, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door, they saw him. They were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and then described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers about this, he said, and then he left for another place, which is a good decision if you've just broken out of jail. (laughs) So Herod, the Rome-approved king, has the apostle James killed, and it drives up his approval rating. This is James, the son of Zebedee, who famously with his brother John gets their mom to ask Jesus if they could sit down at his left and right hand when Jesus comes into his kingdom. You may remember that. The places of honor and power. And Jesus is like, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they say, we can. And Jesus says, you will drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. And so here, James drinks the cup. He is baptized with the same baptism that Jesus was baptized with. He loses his life for the sake of the kingdom. Herod tries to cement the goodwill of the people by going after the leader of the church in Peter. Peter's arrested by uh, Herod and is placed on very heavy guard, four soldiers at all times, rotating through the four watches, 16 soldiers a lot. And while he waits to place him on trial... 16 men guarding one fisherman. This, this feels really excessive, by the way. He's not a soldier. He's not a violent extremist. Peter does not have a very particular set of skills. <laughs> skills he acquired over a very long career. Skills that would make him a nightmare for someone like Herod. Herod has to wait to execute Peter. Because they arrested him during the Festival of Unleavened Bread. And that festival goes for a week. And all this execution stuff is a really big no-no during the Festival of Unleavened Bread. But hey, cut off his head next week. Such is the hilarious irony of the hypocrisy of the religious elite at the time of Jesus, which of course bears no resemblance to the hypocrisy of religious people like me today. The church has just lost James, someone who walked with Jesus, a pillar of the early church, and now looks like Peter's head is on the block as well. And so the church begins to pray earnestly for Peter's release. They have a real, real need, and so they take it to the Lord in prayer. Let's talk about grammar. We love grammar at Encounter Church. In fact, this very week, I received a message from Pastor Mike that began with, I love you, but for the sake of grammar. I've heard the feedback both from Pastor Mike and from the people. What we need to do is talk more about grammar at Encounter Church. So you've asked and we've delivered. Let's look at this, uh, verse 6 of Acts chapter 12. It starts with the night before. The tense of that indicates that time has passed, more than one day. Or else it would read something like the day after or the next night. So we've fast-forwarded in our story into the end of the festival to the day when Herod can have Peter's head. You know what this very riveting point about tense tells us? 
This wasn't an hour prayer meeting on a Thursday night at Enfield United Church, 7.30 p.m. You should be there. Nor was it a 15-minute prayer to start your day on Zoom, 7 a.m. weekdays. The link is on the link tree. You should also be there. The church was praying for Peter constantly, earnestly, for the interstitial space between when Peter was arrested and the end of the festival when he was to be executed. That time could have been for as many as six days if Peter was arrested on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread. The church in Jerusalem probably literally prayed 24 hours, six days a week for Peter's release. And on the last night when it probably felt like they had lost and that Peter was going to share the fate of James and Jesus, God comes through for them big time. Peter's asleep in the cell, chained to two guards on either side, guarded on the outside by two soldiers. Escape for Peter was impossible. How could he escape from that? Aside from the intervention of God. And God does intervene. An angel appears, wakes him, leads him out of his cell. The guards are oblivious. Chains and gates open uh, before them. Peter follows the angel and walks out of the prison. And once he's at a safe distance, the angel Lord disappears. And such, such a surreal experience that Peter realises, it's only when the angel disappears that Peter realises that this actually happened and it wasn't a dream. And so Peter goes to the house where the church was there gathered to pray for him. He knocks on the door and the servant who opens the door, Rhoda, was so excited to hear Peter's voice, she runs to tell the others but forgets to let him in. And here's Peter, so just miraculously escaped from about as high security prison as they had, standing in the middle of the street, in the middle of the night, knocking on a door, saying, let me in. Not exactly ideal. And the church hears from Rhoda that Peter is outside and instead of, A, believing that God had answered their prayer, which they've been praying for days for, or B, actually going outside and checking to see if Peter was outside, they tell Rhoda that she's out of her mind. And when she presses them, explains it away by saying, well, it must be his ghost, i.e., he's already dead, i.e., God did not answer their prayers. This is the early church, which included people who had actually seen the resurrected Jesus in the flesh. And here they are, behaving exactly like us, if we were honest, praying with all the faith that we have, but carrying that doubt in our hearts that God would actually come through for us. Knee drives them to pray, and the Lord responds in power. So what do we do with this? What can we, this incredible story from the early church, teach us about prayer, which is one of our core four values for 2024? I'm going to give you five things. Number one, prayer is the only power that the powerless possess. The great pastor theologian John Stott said this, and the church here in Acts, they turned to prayer because it's the only power that they had. Prayer is the only power that the powerless possess. They could not break Peter out. They could not pull resources to pay for his, his release. They could do nothing. Peter's fate was sealed except for the intervention and action of God. And you see people turn to prayer in times of need because they've hit the end of their own power. When you need something and you do not have the power, the money, the time, the agency, the authority, the access or the knowledge, we tend to go to someone who has more of that. We go to a parent, a teacher, a police officer, a banker, a lawyer, a doctor, a professor. You go to someone with more power. 
And this generally works for people in Australia, and it definitely works better for those who are richer, better connected, and better supported. But there comes things in life that no amount of money, or time, or agency, or authority, or access to knowledge can give you. Sickness, tragedy, calamity, the ripe harvest of our own choices. And you come to the end of yourself and your power to change what is. And this happened for me when Ash got sick. We've been, doing all, we've, seen, we've been to all the doctors and all the specialists. We've paid more money than I'd like to admit in therapy and medicines. And not a lot has changed. What has been wrong has not been able to be corrected by the things that are within our power to correct. And so it's driven us to pray. It's driven me to pray because I am at the end of my power to help Ash. I need someone with more power to intervene. I need God to intervene. I need the one who created the human body, who knows all its parts and how they fit together, who breathes the very life into our bodies to correct what is erroneous in Ash's. I need the one whose very presence and touch could drive out sickness that a woman could just touch the hem of his robe and be completely healed, to calm and heal Ash. I need God to intervene. I need Jesus. And I can honestly say that I've never prayed so much in my life than I have since Ash became sick. Because if I'm honest, I didn't really need to. I didn't really need to. That's thought too. A needless society has created a prayerless church. Prayer is hard in a needless society. I don't mean people don't have needs. We all have so many needs. But we live in a society that avoids showing need at all costs. We go out of our way to not need other people, to show this Instagrammable side of ourselves to others at all costs, to hide our needs from each other until we can't. We don't like being in need. And I, I'm the most guilty of that. Our car broke down. It had a flat battery this morning. So what did I do? We went and bought a car starter so that I would not have to, or Ash and I would not have to, ring a friend to come and jump our car next time it goes flat. I don't like being in need just as much as you. We do things like this to put a hedge around our need, to not have to impose ourselves on others, to not have to inconvenience our friends who had to come and jumpstart our car so that we could get home from Victor Harbour this morning. We don't like being in need. We do our best to not impose those needs, and we want to be seen to have it all together. It's almost as if there's a cultural shame around being in need. Saying someone is needy is never a compliment. So we cultivate our lives in such a way that we would never need anyone but be entirely self-sufficient, which of course, if you actually think about it, is actually impossible. You actually can't live a self-sufficient life. You actually need people. You need community. You need others to live. And I think a needless society has created a prayerless church. If we're honest, we do need help. We need community. We need help paying the bills. We need people we can be truly honest with. We have needs, but generally, for the majority of our church, and definitely not all of us, we are people with the agency, the finances, and the connections to meet most of our needs. We are people with the power to meet our own needs. And so what's driving us to pray? Obligation? 
We all know that doing something out of obligation never goes the distance. Until something goes bad, until we're out of control, until we're faced with something that is out of our power to change, we are driven to pray. But if only, we only pray when life hits the fan, we miss out on all the opportunities to partner with God and to see his power at work in miraculous ways in our lives and in our church. I mean, what do we really need as a church, as Encounter Church? We're fairly full, healthy budget. Pastor Mike's not in jail, about to get his head cut off. Generally sitting, speaking, we are sitting pretty. So why would we pray? What's driving us to pray? If we were an impoverished church in an impoverished community, if we would not lack need to pray or things to pray about. If we were a persecuted church in an oppressive community, we would not lack need to pray or things to pray about. So what about encounter? What about you and what about me? How can we create a sense of need that drives us to prayer and in turn to see the power of God at work in our community in profound and miraculous ways? It's simple, but it's not easy. You ready? Intentionally disrupt your life. Sounds fun, doesn't it? But that's what we've done as a church. We're planning Encounter Henley. We're intentionally disrupting the church. We're intentionally creating need, and that need must and will drive us to pray because we need the power of God to meet those needs. Encounter Henley does not lack need to pray or things to pray for. If we don't pray, we will struggle to plant this church. Without the Spirit of God going before us, breaking chains, opening gates, and leading us to where we need to go, what hope do we really have? We're running off on our own talents and Josh's coolness. We don't have it. We have so much need to pray as a community. And there is so much hidden need in the community in which we have been called to love in the name of Jesus. And because we're planning, Encounter Prospect does not lack the need to pray or things to pray for. Prospect needs people who are called to step up, to fill the gaps, to be renewed and re-energized in their faith. The community of Prospect in this Sefton Park and Enfield area has so much need. You do not, and it's visible need, you do not lack things to pray for or people to be praying for. Disruption creates need which drives us to prayer which invites God to step into our story in unexpected and miraculous ways. What could it look like to intentionally disrupt your life, to step outside of the comfort zone and into the faith zone? To create a sense of need that drives you towards prayer. I don't know about you, but I am not interested in a comfortable middle-class life where the presence and the power of God does not touch my story in surprising and miraculous ways. Yeah. Need drives us to pray, and when we lay up those prayers together, God moves. That's the third thing. Laid up prayer bends reality to God's will. I think it's significant in the story of Peter's miraculous escape how earnestly and consistently they prayed. You can hear the day and night prayer for Peter's sake. The church laid up its prayer for Peter's sake and God bent reality to his will because of it. I don't think it's an accident that so many of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels on prayer include the importance of perseverance. This is what Jesus says in Luke 18. 
Then Jesus told them a parable about they need to pray always and to not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him saying, Grant me justice against my accuser. For a while he refused. But later he said to himself, Though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord Jesus said, Listen to what the unjust says, unjust judge says, and will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. If a wicked, unjust judge gives justice in the face of perseverance, how much more would the God of justice give justice in response to prayer? That's Jesus' point. God is not a vending machine. Prayer is not a magic spell or incarnation. There is no certain words that produce certain results. Prayer is not a formula or a mathematical equation. God is not a genie. If you rub your Bible, God won't give you three wishes. You can try if you want, I don't know. Maybe it works, I don't know. God is the creator of this broken universe that we live in, the one with all the power and authority, who in Jesus Christ is reconciling the whole world, the whole universe to himself to put it all to right. God has a will. God has a mission. And that God cannot be manipulated by us. We are not the center of the universe. God is the center of the universe. Our prayers cannot bend God's will to our will, but our prayers can bend reality to God's will. By praying for a home lottery house in Henley Beach, I'm not attempting to bend God's will to my own because I know that that's foolishness. But I'm laying up my prayers because I think living in Henley Beach is God's will for our family and for this church plant. And maybe, I don't know, God will bend reality to his will in response to my prayer. I don't know, we'll find out in April. (laughs) How prayer bends reality to God's will. Many people have many, many ideas and we have no time from them all. But here's what we do know. From the Bible, from church history, and from our own, for most of you, from your own experience. God answers prayer. He, he simply does. Not always. Not always. Not the, and not the ones, uh, always the ones we want. But God responds in our lives in response to prayer. Even this week, I was praying for relief. And I had these three areas that I was praying, Lord Jesus, please give me breakthrough. And on Friday, I, I, I received news that gave me great relief. But you know what? That wasn't on my list of the three things that I was asking for. That was, uh, that was a long prayer unexpectedly answered. And in my prayer for relief, God brought me relief, but he, had to pull, he pulled one off the bench for me, one that I'd forgotten about. And I'd wager that for most of us, we have probably forgotten more prayers that we've prayed and prayers that God has answered than we remember. I know I do. We remember the one big miraculous answer to prayer, but not the hundred small ones. And it's probably the hundred small ones answered that make the biggest difference over the long haul. And this is why it's so important to journal your prayers and to journal when God's answered them. Do you know that not one prayer is forgotten by God? In Revelations 5, 8, uh, we, we see this picture of 24 elders and they're worshipping Jesus. And each of them, they hold a harp and their golden ball 
a bowl filled with incense. And John, who's, who's seeing this vision, says, that incense in the bowl, that's, that's the prayers of the saints. Every prayer, every follower of Jesus has ever prayed in those bowls, remembered, laid up, treasured like fragrant incense, pleasing to the Lord, in the throne room of God. Every prayer you've ever prayed is remembered by God, even if you have forgotten it. This is what the missionary Frank Lorbach said about prayer. Prayer is powerful, but it's not the power of a sledgehammer that crushes with one blow. It is the power of sun rays and of raindrops which bless because there are so many of them. Many prayers may show no visible results, but at least some of them will hit their mark. When you fill a swamp with stones, a hundred loads may disappear under the water before a stone appears on the surface, but all of them are necessary. What if you saw your prayers, not as shots in the dark that are a hit or miss, but as throwing a stone in a swamp? Every prayer repeated, not a miss, but laid upon the last prayer you prayed, laid upon the prayers of other people who are praying for the same thing, laid up upon each other. Throw enough stones, one will eventually appear on the surface. But every one vital. Peter's going to be executed, and so the church lays up their prayers. They throw stones in the swamp 24-6 to bend reality to God's will. Friends, that's why our prayer ministries at Encounter are so important. That's why your own prayer life is so important. That's why prayer is one of our core fours for 2024. Every prayer is vital. And that's why every person who's joined our launch team for Encounter Henley is committed to pray an hour a week in and for Henley and the West. That's why one of the first things we hope to do is to establish a prayer room at Encounter Henley. So we can see with our eyes and feel with our spirits the prayers that are being laid up together as a church community seeks to bend reality to God's will. What if we could recapture fervent prayer like the early church? We would be praying in the example of Jesus. This is point four. It wasn't until I'd read about five commentaries on this passage that I realized, it clicked for me that the word that uh, Luke uses in Acts 12 verse 5, which is usually translated earnestly or fervently, ektenos. Luke, who collated the, the, and wrote the book of Acts, also collated and wrote a book, uh, a gospel, his gospel Luke. And, and Luke uses this same word in one very specific location, ektenos, in the Garden of Eden. Jesus is about to be arrested and brutally executed by crucifixion. This is in Luke 22, verses 41 to 44. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup for me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. He prayed fervently. He prayed at tenos. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down the ground. He prayed ectenos. He prayed fervently, earnestly, to the point of literally sweating blood. Now this is no literary accident. Luke is a brilliant writer. He does this intentionally to show that the early church was praying the same kind of passionate, fervent, 
earnest prayer for Peter's life, that laying up their prayers together with such zeal, such passion, they were imitating Jesus in the garden. They were imitating their Lord. Here's the great mystery of prayer. It would be foolish to think that the early church was not praying with the same earnesty for James than they did for Peter. They would have prayed ectenos for James and yet James lost his head and Peter was miraculously saved. I would be lying if I said that I understood why it was. That one apostle of the Lord, one who had walked in the flesh with Jesus himself, was saved because uh, was saved because of the prayers of the early church and one who also walked with Jesus lost his head. The church prayed for both. One dies and one lives. And this mystery still exists today. Two people with cancer fervently prayed for by the church and one is healed and one is not. And we don't know why. It's a great mystery. Who can understand the mind of God? Who truly grasps his plans? Who really truly sees the bigger picture? Not me. Not me. People with chronic illness are prayed for fervently by the church all the time. And some are healed, but my wife has not been. Does this make me angry? Sometimes. Does this make me bitter or resentful towards God? Definitely not. I personally think, and this is a personal thought, that it would be arrogant and foolish of me to demand that God give me my life the way that I think I should have it. I am less wise or good and more selfish and more proud than I'd like to admit. I should not have life my way. My way would be terrible for all involved. Ash's illness is not my will or hers, and I actually don't think it's God's either. But I have come to accept that it is. It is. And at least for now, that's enough. God has allowed it. At least for now. Job says this in Job 2.10. Shall we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? Now this is a very hard teaching. A very, very hard teaching. But I think it helps us, and it certainly helps me, to realise that Jesus shares this experience and shared this experience. His prayer in the garden, his fervent prayer was, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Any other way, Father, that's the prayer. Any other way but this. But not my will, but yours be done. And like, James, and like James, his prayer is not answered. And the miraculous way out is not given. And so Jesus goes to the cross for you and for me out of trust and obedience to the Father. He enjoyed horrific abuse and suffering and he took on the sin of the world and he died to deal with it. And God raised him from the dead in order that you and I might be raised to life with him as well. Without Jesus' trust of the Father and his obedience to God's will, in the good and in the very much less desirable, we would be stuck in our sin, doomed to an eternal existence without the one who created us and loves us more than we could ever hope or imagine. 
Perhaps all desperate prayer, fervent prayer, both answered and unanswered, plays a part in bending the universe to God's will. A will that is ultimately good and for the life of the world, even when we don't always understand it. This is my last point. Prayer is life with God. All, God, all good theology in the last 2,000 years has affirmed that Jesus is God incarnate. God stepped into creation in the person of Jesus. We understand God as Trinity, three in one. Distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. But there's a mutual indwelling of these persons. All three are God. But as St. Augustine said, each are in each and all in each. And each in all and all are one. Now, we're not here for a plenary on the Trinity, but the main point is that Jesus can't be separated from the Father, just as Jesus cannot be separated from the Son. They are one. Jesus says in John 14, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So why does Jesus pray in the garden? Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. He is in the Father and the Father is in him. Why plead in fervent prayer for the cup to be taken from him? Each are in each, and all in each, and each in all, and all are one. The Father knows how he feels. And the Son knows that there is no other way. Isn't this just history's most redundant conversation? <laughs> but it's not. It teaches us something vital about prayer. You know, I struggled to pray for a long time because I'd theologize myself out of needing to pray. God knows what I need. He knows how I feel. Why do I need to tell him? but I've never treated any other relationship like that. Your spouse, friends, family, the people who know you well, they tend to know how you're feeling and probably what you need, especially if you are very transparent about your mood like I am. But it's still good for you to share your feelings and your needs with the people around you. You might know, that someone need, you might know what someone needs or how they feel, and yet it's so important that you still ask. Prayer is how we have a relationship with God. And just like everything else, the conversation is the relationship. The conversation is the relationship. Think about this. How can you know someone well without the thousands of hours talking with them? Either with your mouth or by letter or email. Sure, you can experience some things together. You can watch them do things. But you don't really know them until they offer to you how they experience those things into you in, in, in conversation what was going on for them when that happened, how that made them feel. That's how you really get to know someone. Jesus shares his deep sorrow and fear with the Father because he was in perfect relationship with the Father. And the conversation is the relationship. For the one who had perfect relationship with the Father prayed even in the garden, what reason is there for us to not pray? To finish, let me tell you about Nicholas Herman. Herman was born in France in 1614. He was an injured prisoner of war in the Thirty Years' War. And by the age of 26, he, joined the army, he left the army and he joins a Carmelite monastery as a brother. There he worked in the kitchen for most of his life, washing dishes and preparing food all day. Nicholas begins to practice holding his attention on God, bringing the Lord to mind, speaking to him, listening to him, being aware of his mind and his spirit and the spirit of the presence of God with him as he cuts vegetables and washes pots. And over time, Nicholas becomes so alive to God 
the people begin to take notice. And priests and bishops, they come and they visit him and they want to talk to him. They come to him for advice. This kitchen hand in a monastery, they come to him for spiritual wisdom. And one of them, one of these priests, they, they write down the series of conversations with Nicholas about his spiritual practice, which is published under the religious name he took when he joined the monastery, Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection. Brother Lawrence, that, that became a book, and that book, Practicing the Presence of God, is still in print today. You can get it. And it is gorgeous in its simplicity. Prayer is life with God. To pray is to live a life alive to God. God's presence is all around us. Within us, we have His Holy Spirit. God is paying attention to us. God is speaking to us. Are we paying attention to Him? What if we practice paying attention to God? What if we practice noticing His presence? You know, need drives us to pray, but what we all actually need, more than answers to prayer, more than money, more than food, more than healing, more than a house in Henley Beach, is God himself. What we actually need deep down is God. Now I think, I might think that winning a home lottery is what I need right now, but it's not. I need a God a whole lot more than I need a house in Henley Beach. And I think, and this is, I think, the whole point of prayer. Need drives us to pray so we can realize all we actually need is Him. Need drives us towards relationship with God. Need drives us to God. We need God's presence in our lives. A life alive to God, a life truly alive is a life alive to God. And God has made a way for us to walk with Him forever. Now, today, in this life, we walk with God in spirit through prayer. But one day, in the life that is to come, we will walk with God like humanity did in the beginning of time in the garden, side by side, in conversation, because conversation is the relationship. I wonder, are you alive to God? Are you alive to God? For some of us, becoming alive to God is as simple as beginning to pray and to bring your attention to the presence of God in your life, in your ordinary, everyday life. To begin to pray, to talk with God. If that's you, if you want to become alive to God today, as we sing this next song, would you open your hearts to the Lord? Would you speak to Him? Would you listen? Allow your mind to become aware of His presence. For some of you, perhaps you're like me, that you've had a great need. You've been praying for it for a really long time. Healing hasn't come. The need hasn't been yet met. But for one reason or another, you, have, you haven't felt like you could unleash it to God. That's what I sense. There's some of us here, we haven't been honest with God about how we feel about our needs. I want you to know that, you, that God can take your honesty. God can take your honesty. God the Father could take Jesus' honesty in the garden. I know the plan. I know it's vital. I know that's why I'm here. But any other way. Please, Father, any other way. As we sing this song in your living room online church, maybe today you need to get honest with God. Maybe you really need to get honest with Him about how you're actually feeling. Don't sanitize it for God. Don't color it the right way. Don't put a filter over it. Be honest. Get honest with God.
And for some of you, you're not alive to God because you've never realized you could be. Maybe you've never said yes to Jesus before. Now, if that's you and you want to become alive to God and receive His Holy Spirit, during this next song, um, come down the sides and there'll be elders or pastors here. And what we'll do is an ancient Christian tradition. We'll just put one hand on you and we will pray that you will receive the Holy Spirit. That's it. You'll have the Holy Spirit. You'll be alive to God. Let's pray together as we walk into worship. Oh Lord, we thank you that you have done so much. You have gone the whole distance to bring us towards you so that we can even be alive to you. We were dead in our sin. But you sent Jesus to come and give us life. And so we pray, Lord, would you just be here amongst us? Would you come, Holy Spirit? Would you do that inner work? Would you, would you make us aware of your presence? Even if there are things that are getting in the way, would you open our eyes, open our ears, open our mind, open our hearts so that we would know you, Jesus? Because you are all we really need in life. We could have it all, all the riches, all the houses, all the buildings, all the cars, the luxurious life, but we would lack everything because we don't have you. And we could have nothing at all, nothing to eat, nothing to wear, nowhere to sleep. And we would have everything because we had you, Jesus. So we pray, Lord, would you be present amongst us tonight? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. I pray that you were able to hear from God in a fresh way today. We would love to hear from our listeners. To connect with us or to financially support the work of Encounter, please jump on our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to jump onto iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast provider and give us a rating and review. Or share this message on your social media accounts and tag us at Encounter Adelaide. God bless. Have an amazing week.